This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Jaquintin Means from Central Arkansas. He is the author of the book, Willie, a fictional account based on the actual Willie Lynch letter, The Making of a Slave. Jaquintin is a lover of history, philosophy, and symbolism. His life is a witness to the alchemy of all three of these. He truly believes that we can break the bonds of mental slavery by loving mankind and educating ourselves in the truth about our history. This is how Jaquintin fights racism and works for unity. Our conversation runs deep and philosophical, everything I love, and I certainly valued my time with Jaquintin, his knowledge, his insights, and all the research he's put into this. I hope you enjoy our time together as much as I did. Jaquintin, I am very thankful you chose to be with me today, and I really look forward to seeing the world through your lens. Um, I'd like to start with what I consider the baseline easy question, which is if you could invite three people over for a meal, who would they be and why? Malcolm X, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, just to pick his brain and to feel his warmth and energy um, in the flesh. Uh, Tupac Shakur would be one. Um, because, because he was so young, um, and he had so much understanding and Mm -hmm. went through so much pressure as a young person and handled it with so much grace. I would love to pick his brain and just see what kept him sane. And I guess the third one was probably be Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Dave Chappelle. Good for you. I've been a huge Dave Chappelle fan for so long Uh and. I think uh, Dave Chappelle has kind of mastered the art of saying what he wants without putting a target on his back. And I cool. would love to laugh and have a good conversation with him. Mm. You know, you're the second person who said Tupac Shakur. I think that's really pretty cool. Yeah. And the first person was an immigrant who just moved here uh, maybe, I think, three years ago. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. He's like, he has his pulse on whatever it is. He knows what he's talking about. I thought that was pretty cool that both of you guys, uh, I, it makes me want to um, learn more about his life for sure. Oh yeah. Look, look into his mother and his music and you'll know, you'll find out everything you need to know. Cool. I'm going to do that for sure. I'm always inspired by the guests list that my guests choose because um it really does show a lot about who they are by who they choose to invite. And so it's my first sneak peek into who you are. Well, Jaquentin, I am genuinely curious um, about how you grew up. What were some of the good, wonderful things about growing up in 
Springdale, Arkansas, and what were some of the hardships that you overcame that created who you are now? Um, well, actually, I only stayed in Springdale for a small period of time um, over the last two and a half years. I grew up mostly in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. Um, and my grandmother was a big foundation of my childhood, um, for sure. My mom had me very young. Um, she had me at the age of 20. And my grandmother, um, I just spent a lot of time with her. And it was in the 90s, so gang culture in that that time period was very strong. And there was a lot of drive-bys and everything. Mm. Um, but my grandmother raised us in the church. Um, and we were Baptists growing up. And I just, from me being in a church all the time and being exposed to that type of uh, literature, so to speak, um, it just gave me a, a love for the spiritual. It gave me a love for God. It gave me a love for people, um, to serve people, to understand people. Um, and it taught me like how to smile through adversity as well. Um, as we got older, my mom, you know, she let, we traveled the world with my mom and she made sure that we got to awesome. see different things. Um, so that was, that was definitely beautiful. Um, so I didn't have the worst of childhoods, uh, by no means. Um, but those early years, like my grandmother and the way that she treated people in her community, the way she treated people in the church and the way that she always like, um, let me know that it was okay to be different. Um, and kind of like always kind of understood that I was a little weird and out of the box. It gave me a lot of self-confidence that didn't show up until I was older in life. So. Hmm. Thank God for grandmas, for the people who let you be who you are. I love that. She lets you be somebody who was out of the box. What a gift. So for, just from a, a cursory glance at your Instagram page and some of your YouTube um, posts, I can tell you have an extreme love of history. Where did that come from? And yeah, tell me how you uh, cultivated that love and what you're doing with it now. Cool. Um, you know, a lot of that came from the Bible. A lot of that came from... Uh just wanting to understand why we were here and how did we get to this point. I think um, once I started to kind of wake up of the night, you know, being a naive young person, I really started to look at the world and wonder like, how did we get to this point? Um, and I think uh, the history of the Bible and just wanting to understand like what make people the way that we are today, what makes, society the way that it is today and people always saying if you want to understand your future understand your past mm -hmm. um it just made me dive directly into the most ancient of history i can find because i wanted to understand human nature mm -hmm. and i wanted to understand okay if this is what it was in the past how can we overcome it to make a better tomorrow um and that really drove my love for history um just really wanting to create heaven on earth as the Bible says and mm -hmm. the um, Lord's prayer. Uh, like what is it going to take to do that? So mm -hmm. now what I do with history is really, I want to show people where we come from, the lessons we should learn from the injustices that are in history 
the triumphs in history, the overcoming that people came, the, the barriers that people were able to cross to understand that we're all human beings working towards the same goals, fighting against the same things. Um, that's always my goal when I teach about history, regardless if it seems like I'm being negative or, you know, talking too much on um, black injustice, black death, black murder, or, you know, Native American or whoever it may be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My goal is never to divide. It's always to say, okay, let's look at this injustice, see what we need to do to overcome it and heal so we can create unity and build a tomorrow for our children that we all want to see. Um, yeah, and that's, that's what a where great my goal. love for history come from. I yeah. can tell, it seems like it's a little interwoven with philosophy as well. Would that be a true yes. statement? Yeah, that is true. Did I'm you study very, philosophy in school? No, um, I actually, I'm self-taught. I went to like one year of college for computer science and- uh, Oh, really? Um, and I study symbolism because symbolism mm -hmm. is a big thing in our culture, our society. Yeah. All you have to do is look at the back of the dollar bill and you'll see that symbolism Mm -hmm. is very important. Mm -hmm. um, secret societies became very important to me. Alchemy became very important to me. Uh, so yeah, that's where the kind of the philosophy comes into play. Uh, just understanding how symbolism works on the subconscious mind and how it can be used, you know, for us, against us. When we look at the cross, when we look at the donkey or the mm -hmm. elephant with Democrat and Republican, when we look at a Confederate flag, like all these symbols come from something. What do they mean and why do they make us feel a certain way? Um, that's very important to me. That's fantastic. I'm glad you're spending the time researching and then teaching. We need people who love to share what they learn. And I can tell that your waters run deep and I really resonate with that and appreciate that very much. You mentioned that you had a very good childhood was there a time that your parents ever talked to you, sat down and talked to you about racism and explained it? Or was it just the waters you swam in and you just understood this is the way it is? You know, um, I think in the black community more than any other community in America, and I'm just speaking on my personal experience. Yes. We don't have an opportunity to not talk about it. So mm -hmm. from as early as I can remember, first, second grade, the idea and topic of race was always prevalent and important um, because they always wanted me to understand that I was going to be treated different because of the color of my skin and that I had no choice in the matter um, what I could do about it or not do about it. The main thing I could do about it was to be aware so when certain situations occurred I could act accordingly and not be surprised by the treatment because of the color of my skin. And um, I think when I was younger, I was very resistant towards that mm. all the way up until my late teens. And I think when I started going into adulthood and started working and different things, it became so obvious to me. I was like, oh, that's why my grandmother said this. This is why uh -huh. my mom said this. I was like, because it's, it's like, oh, I can't run from it now. It doesn't matter how light I am or if I have tattoos or no tattoos, like, I am black. I'm a black male in America. I'm going to be treated a certain way. Deal with it, you know, be aware of it, act accordingly and make the best of your situation. Um, so, yeah, that that is something that we don't get to run from in the black community. I would imagine it causes a lot of anger 
It does. At a certain age, especially for certain age boys, especially. So I, I really had a deep, deep awakening towards it when I was about 23, 24. Um, and I was wondering, you know, why hasn't anybody done anything about it? And then I realized mm-hmm. I started learning about the Black Panthers in depth. Mm-hmm. I started learning about Malcolm X in depth. And I was like, people have been doing something about it for a long time. The issue is the status quo and we can say that they, the powers they be, um, mm-hmm. we can say, you know, American society, however we want to put it, has actively kept it from being fixed. Exactly. And when I understood that, then I was like, oh, I'm mad at the wrong people. I'm not, mm-hmm. shouldn't be mad at, you know, the white person I see at the grocery store or my mm-hmm. boss at work. I should be mad at the establishment for not allowing the change to happen and actively stopping it at every chance they got from being fixed. Um, to speak to the yeah. other side of that, though, do you think not only is the, the establishment um, doing everything it can to keep the status quo the way it is because they like it the way it is, do you feel like it was started, America was originated as a racist country? It started that way. And then we have just, that's in the definition of systemic racism, it was originated this way and it has just continued down that same path. Is, do you agree with that statement or no? Yes, to a degree. Um, and when I say that to a degree is I believe that in order for racism to be established, every, uh, there had to be someone, a representative for every race at the table to create it in the first place. Because racism plays on the weaknesses of every race and culture and the insecurities of every race and culture in America. That's Um, genius. I love that quote. I'm going to use that one. That's awesome to Quentin. um, So there's there's no way that just white people could have came up with this system of racism. Black people couldn't have come up with it on their own. It took a working body of someone from every culture to make it work the way that it does because it plays so deep on things that we don't necessarily understand on the, you know, on the outside, but on the subconscious level, it's so present that we can't Mm -hmm. run away from it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it uses fear and guilt and all these different aspects of our lives that aren't never in our face and they only arise when they're challenged. And that's how I know that it couldn't have been just the white man that created racism, Mm. that it had to be, you know, we want to say guilty people. I mean, uh, greedy people. It had to be a collective of greedy people that made it last so long. And we know this because if we study hard enough, there's always been informants. There's always been, um, people that were working for both sides in every culture that spoke the language that understood their people that could exploit them from the inside. Um, it was a quote from Mel Gibson's, uh, Apocalypto. And at the beginning of the movie, it says only way a a culture can fall is from the inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's completely true. I need to understand your language. I need to look like you. I need to talk like you. And if I do that, then I can exploit you. And I can't do that from the outside looking in because if you're white and you come into a black community, I'm going to always know you're an outsider. Yes. You know, you look like an outsider, you talk like an outsider, you walk like an outsider. I need someone that speaks that language, walks that walk, talk that talk in order for this plan to work. Um, and that's just my personal opinion. 
Mm, what insight, though. Well, you mentioned greediness. I'm gonna, uh, I want to ask you about, are you familiar with Ibram X. Kendi? No, I'm not. He wrote a book about how to be an anti-racist, which um, I found just fascinating. Um, but he has this one particular quote in there that I really like to ask all my guests' opinion of because each person has a unique take on it. And I find that fascinating. Um, he says something about just that thing. He says, um, he believes that racism is not caused by hate and ignorance, but by self-interest. You agree, because self-interest in, in, in its actual form is greed, isn't it? A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. And you can look in America, if you look at America, there's people from every race thriving, and there's people from every race oppressed. Mm -hmm. And what is the difference between the two is always self-interest and the willingness to exploit your own people and to exploit others to get that type of wealth. So we know that America to me is not a white supremacist society. I know this is probably a very controversial statement, to me, America is not white supremacy. It's a greed supremacy. It's an anti-human supremacy. It's an anti-purpose supremacy. Um, because if people are driven by purpose and we're driven by what's most important, racism completely falls away. But we're mm -hmm. not driven by that. Mm -hmm. We're driven about gain, money, materialistic things. And that's why some a black person can be privileged just like a white person can mm -hmm. be if they have enough money in their pocketbook to be so. If they're following the religion of capitalism, right? Exactly. That's the most important thing, it seems like. And that's keeping all of the divisions where they are, you think, huh? Oh, 100%. I don't think they exist unless there are people to exploit others um, in our society. They just wow. don't exist. That's, that's super cool. I, I, really like, I really like where you're going with that. I haven't thought about that before, but it's so 100% true. So what do you think, why do you think it's so hard for people to talk about racism then? The pain, the pain of the trauma, of all the murders, of all the injustice, of the police brutality, of the massacres, the Elaine massacre, the, mm -hmm. you know, the Rosewood massacre, I mean, we can go the the Tulsa massacres mm -hmm. and there's so much pain. There's so much guilt. Um, there's so much fear involved. Are black people going to take revenge for slavery? Are they going to take revenge for these massacres? Are, are, are white people equal to blacks? Are, do, they, do we have to step on blacks in order for us to have a place in society? I think it's all these things, like I said earlier, that work on the subconscious mind that we don't necessarily diagnose on the outset but is a definite detriment to us coming together as a human race because there is so much injustice there has been so mm -hmm. much blood spilt that it's hard for us to heal from that overcome it and actually look at things for what they are or you know look between the lines essentially that's just my personal opinion so you feel that the conversation is hard to have between the races because pain on the side of um, black people and guilt on the side of white people. Yes. And where's that middle ground? Where do we meet? Recognizing the pain, apologizing for that, making reparations. And then on the black side, do you think 
that it's just hard to trust? Do you feel that maybe it's hard to trust or open up to maybe this white person or this person, any non-person of color would actually really have my best interest at heart? Do you feel that there's a trust issue or is there any issue at all? I think there is a trust issue to a degree. Um, but I think the main thing is, whew, that's a that's a really hard question. I think some of it is trust, but when we look at history, um, like the Rainbow Coalition of the 1970s in Chicago, mm -hmm. the Black Panthers were readily able to uh, to combine and unify with the Young Patriots, who were a poor migrant group of white people who wore Confederate flags because they understood that they were both fighting against the same thing. So there wasn't an issue of trust. It was an issue of what unites us and how can we look at what we have in common and, and the same problems that we have mm -hmm. um, as individuals and let's build on that. So I think mm -hmm. what happens is we have this invisible wall and barrier of race because of the guilt and because of the pain and because mm -hmm. of everything that's happened in the past that it's hard for us to look at what actually brings us together as human beings Very so not so much so. trust as it is just a trying to climb that wall and get over that hurdle so we mm -hmm. can understand one another for who we are and not just looking at okay black and white okay your race did this mm -hmm. your ancestors mm -hmm. did this my ancestors went through this um and it's hard. I mean, oh my, I mean, I lived in Northwest Arkansas, um, where Springdale is, um, and the KKK is not too far from there. So Harrison's probably about an hour and a half away from there. Mm -hmm. um, everyone in America know about Harrison. It's like mm -hmm. the headquarters of the KKK, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to speak. Um, and it was really hard on me to live there because of all the pain and the history of hangings and burnings mm -hmm. and all the discrimination um and it was hard for me to trust my neighbors and trust the people that live there I imagine. Um, and i can't tell you the amount of paranoia and yeah. different things i went through living in an area like that um so i know it's very real but at the end of the day it's how much are you willing to see if someone has changed um, can they prove to you that they have changed? Can they prove to you that they're open-minded? Can they prove to you that we are humans and we can connect on things that we see as alike and also respect the differences in each other's cultures? Mm -hmm. um, mm. It's very hard. It is, yeah. It's not an easy thing to uh, accomplish. No, there's no easy else. answer, I don't think. Um, it sounds like it's just hard work. And we have to be willing to put in the hard work. Just because something's hard doesn't make it bad or wrong. It just means it's hard. And the reward is that much sweeter when you put in the, the time and the effort and energy, right? Right. I have had the most amazing time these last couple months interviewing and talking to mostly complete strangers. And the commonalities between us have, have just been so incredible i just wonder it makes me mad at myself for like why did i wait so long to do this i'm having the time of my life and i see all the things we have in common but when i really search and dig deep down as to why did i wait so long to reach out and have these conversations 
I have to say it's probably guilt because I don't want to be looked at as one of those people. I imagine people looking at me thinking, oh, she's got everything good and great going in her life. She's probably one of those people who doesn't even, you know, I don't know if she's for me or against me. And I just want to carry a sign around saying, I'm for you. I am with you. You don't realize that I'm on your side. And I think a lot of that is guilt-based because I don't, I didn't know how to have that conversation before now. It's not easy and it takes time. Um, And I think that's, the issue is, I know this is very controversial too, black people tend not to be, or African Americans tend not to be as open um, towards that, um, understanding the guilt in other people. And Mm -hmm. I think we actually want to challenge the guilt. It's almost like we want to make white people feel even more guilty and to say that they're not doing enough. Like I hear that a lot um, from white people in the church, not in the church. They really want to help black, uh, black people or African-Americans succeed that it seems like every time when they ask, what can I do more? Black people always try to make them feel more guilty and say that you're not doing enough instead of having the conversation that would bring understanding. Mm. I think African-Americans, even though we've been through a lot in this country, We also need to understand and be humble to have that conversation, to not make you feel guilty, to understand the guilt that you already feel just from having morals and character and build from that. That way we can actually find some solutions. Mm -hmm. And the thing is not every white person is a racist and not Mm -hmm. every black person is for black people. And I think once we start looking at our own kind and our own people and understanding that we all have our devil, so to speak, that we all have our bad seeds, so to speak, then we can have a more honest conversation and find some common ground that makes sense. You are such a good teacher. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I really appreciate you speaking from your heart and, and uh, teaching me a lot right now. I'm, I'm curious, about your opinion on um, microaggressions or these subtleties of snide remarks or backhanded comments. What, what do you have to say towards that? Passive aggressive? Uh, yes. Being passive aggressive? Yes. Acceptable. Um, I'm a very blunt person. I try to say what I mean all the time. Um, I think all the great people throughout history, um, the Tupac Shakur's, the Dave Chappelle's, the Malcolm mm-hmm. X, the Mar- Things, they said what they meant and there was no room for error in their wording because you understood what they meant as soon as they left their lips and I think it breeds confusion I think it breeds division and I think it can be divisive and misleading um, and I think if we haven't learned anything from this past summer of protests and mm-hmm. riots that clarity is the most important thing and gestures, good gestures, bad gestures, backhead comments, um, passive aggressive comments, does nothing but lead to more confusion. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's better that we get to a point to where we speak openly, honestly about things so we can get clarity. It's a horrible question to ask. I don't know if there's a good way to, to ask it. Um, have you ever personally ha- been the recipient of a racist attack? And if so, could you tell us about it? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't say as bad as every day, but it's happened a lot in my life, um, for sure. It happens often, not as often now, um, that now that I'm back in central Arkansas. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's, it's happened so many times. I mean, from racially profiled getting pulled over countless times, um, getting more in more trouble for crimes that I've talked to friends about that they've gotten, you know, slap on the wrist or nothing happens to me getting the maximum, mm. um, for certain things. Um, I mean, there's just so many, I just, to being stopped on a dirt road in the middle of the night, because I don't look like I belong in a certain area. I mean, and, yeah. you know, being told, okay, it's okay that you go home now. I mean, it's it's been so much over the last four years. I, I probably experienced more racism in the last four years than I have the rest of my life in total. Really? Um, yeah, um, just Northwest Arkansas in general, um, and I hope I don't get in too much trouble for saying this, uh, but this Northwest Arkansas in general is extremely uh, racist place. And I think it's because there's so few blacks or African-Americans in the area um, that all the stereotypes that are typically put on African-Americans are put on the few that are there. Mm. And now granted, I have dreadlocks, I'm covered in tattoos. So I get it to a to an extent. I mean, I get it to a point for sure. But it's just like that lack of being treated or even feeling like a normal human being and the constant anxiety of looking over your shoulder and the paranoia mm -hmm. of, you know, am I even safe in my own home? Do they mm. even think I can afford to live here? Uh, I've been pulled over more times in the last four years than I have my whole life combined. Um, been issued more tickets in the last four years than I have my whole life combined. Um, I, I can hear the just exhaustion of it in your voice. I can hear the, like, how much more am I going to have to put up with? And yet, why, if, if it's been the worst in the last four years in the whole of your life, why do you continue to stay there? Because it's a beautiful place, because it's your home, because you don't well, want somebody else to push you out of where you love to live? I felt like that um, until I moved back to Northwest, um, until I moved from Northwest Arkansas back to Central Arkansas. Um, and I think mainly there because I felt isolated and alone. Um, and a lot of it was just, okay, well, maybe you can endure it longer. Maybe you can ride this wave a little longer. Um, and I think it just, things just kind of ran their course. And I just needed to be back around other people of color. Like I had this conversation with a good friend of mine um, about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. Because um, I've only been back home for about a month and I saw all these black people and I haven't seen that many black people in a, four years, you mm. know, in place. And I just like looked at him and I just goes, oh, I love being around black people. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me. He's like, you don't have to explain it. Culture is a real thing. And I was like, I just can't explain to you how much I love being around black people again. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some positive and negatives of you know, black communities and especially poorer black communities, but there's a certain acceptance, uh, acceptance you feel when you're around your own people. There's a certain amount of uh, 
relaxed that you feel, ease that you feel when you're around your own people. And I think anybody of any race can, mm-hmm. you know, to that. So, yeah, it's, I, I'm definitely grateful to be back home. I'm definitely grateful to be around other people of color and not feel like I'm the odd man out. Yeah. Like you said, anybody wants to be around somebody who shares their same understandings, experiences, knows what it feels like without having to explain everything. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what community is, right? Right. Right. Um, well, I know that you, with your love of history, your love of learning, your desire to be inclusive and speak out against racism, you have come to a conclusion about you're going to write a book. So tell tell us about this book and how it originated and where what the title is, what it's about. So in case the readers are interested, they can go purchase it. Not the um, readers, I'm sorry. In case the listeners are interested, who will be readers? <laughs> um, the book literally came about, I have a good friend of mine. Um, he's very dark-skinned, I'm very light-skinned. And we were actually walking the dirt roads of Northwest Arkansas. Um, he came up there with me on a trip. And uh, I just had this idea of, a house, a house slave and a field slave, you know, being brothers and both wanting the same things, but having a very different view on life just because of the color of their skin. But yet that desire to be free um, was strong and potent. And what is freedom? What are you willing to do for freedom? Um, What are you willing to sacrifice for freedom? Um, was a very strong theme of the initial idea behind the book. Um, and then I started learning more about um, the Willie Lynch letter. The, going into the Willie Lynch letter is a whole nother thing. But, yeah, I do uh, not know about the Willie Lynch letter. Um, I guess a quick synopsis is it's a very controversial letter uh, because people say that it's real. Some people say that it's not real. Um, some people say that it was a college professor that wrote it actually in the 80s and then in the 90s, um, once the internet got more popular, then it kind of went viral. And it's this letter from a slaveholder from the West Indies laying out this program for indoctrinating slaves for up to 400 years. Um, And he basically compared the breaking of black slaves to the breaking of horses. Um, And he talked about not letting them understand the language, um, putting dark skin versus light skinned, old versus young, um, making sure that they have a multiplicity of illusions um, Mm. them from understanding the reality that they're actually in. Um, And so the title of my novel is Willie based off of that letter. And it takes place in Arkansas um, and it has historical figures from Arkansas. Some I changed the names to protect their identity. Some I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this big play on what is, what makes a slave subconsciously? Um, what is the phenomenon that could break them free of that slavery, of that mental slavery, of that mm-hmm. mental control? Um, and what is the indoctrination of racism? Um, mm, I like that story. point, the indoctrination of racism. Wow. This is going to be an incredible book. I cannot wait to read it. 
Oh yeah, it, actually, I released it last uh, September. I'm gonna make sure you get a, a copy of it. Oh, you're uh, awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure you get a copy. I will send you a electronic copy, and I'll mail you a copy as well. Thank you so uh, much. And so, is this set in a historical time frame, or is this yeah. modern day? It's antebellum South. It's set between the years of the 1840s going into the early stages of the Civil War. Um, and it's going to be a three-part series. The first part um, takes part, like I said, 1840s to the early stages of the Civil War. The second part is during the Civil War, and the third part is during Reconstruction. Yeah, it was it it, it was an emotional tax. It's rewarding work, I think. In my mind, um, I'm very big on unity. I'm very big on wanting people to understand what we go through um, as individuals and as a race of people um, collectively and in the, and you know in our selective races mm -hmm. um, so to me it was just more important that we understand in what ways we are all enslaved mm. so we can get free together instead of thinking that it's white versus black or black versus hispanic or native american versus white or you know whatever the narrative is um, just understanding that we all have a mountain to climb and the only way we can get there is if we lend a hand to each other. Uh, I love that phrase, get free together. That makes my heart swell. I'm, uh, I love that. It's a beautiful place to end. I can't wait to read it. Thank you for writing this, Jaquentin. This is going to be incredible. Well, let's go ahead and close. Uh, what is your one best tip to make the world a better place? Be humble. You don't have to necessarily strive to just try to see things from someone else's point of view, but if you're humble and you're willing to let different things into your heart, then you're gonna be much better off as a human being. Mm -hmm. What wisdom. What are you the most thankful for right now? just life just being able to breathe and have another day to try again that's awesome and finally what is your favorite quote our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate our greatest fear is that we are is that we are powerful beyond measure and i believe that was um i don't know why i cannot think of nelson mandela said that now i don't know if it was his quote originally but that's mm. one of my quotes that's powerful a great way to close let's close on a deep philosophical point huh i appreciate your time your insight your opinions and your wisdom so much more than you know well i appreciate you having me on and grateful that you gave me a chance to um i guess tell my truth so to speak I can't thank you enough for having me on again. You're very welcome. It's all my pleasure, honestly. Right out of the gate, Jaquentin exposes his heart and how he expresses his desire for unity. Oh, that just melted my heart. When he's explaining injustices against black or indigenous people, it's for the sole purpose of educating overcoming and healing in order to create a better future for our children. How beautiful is that? Doing the hard work now will yield positive results for future generations.
Jaquinton's insight into how there are people from every race thriving and being oppressed really challenged me to stop and think and see this through his lens. It was a powerful declaration that he has given much consideration to. According to Jaquinton, the difference between the oppressed and the thriving is always self-interest and the willingness to exploit others. His controversial opinion is that America is not driven by white supremacy, but by greed. Take some time and sit with that. Suspend judgment and look at it from all angles. This is why it's important to hear different viewpoints, not to get immediately offended by them, but to add them to what you know or are learning and consider this new aspect and how it fits in with what you already know. I can't believe that this was the first time I asked the question, why do you think it's so hard for people to talk about racism? I am so inspired by Jaquinton's honest insight regarding the depths of pain, trauma, guilt, and fear that are embedded so deep into our collective American psyche. There are no easy answers or easy ways to walk through this. Reconciliation is usually a painful process, but it's a necessary pain that will eventually yield healing. His explanation of the invisible wall of racism acting as a barrier to unity is a fantastic analogy that describes the reality of racism in this country perfectly. This is a dialogue that is beneficial to us all because we all have a stake in this. Which of us has ever achieved anything hard alone? We normally go through the difficulties or mountains of life with the help, encouragement, or a shoulder to lean on of someone who's close to us. Thus, it completely resonated with me when Jaquinton acknowledged that very fact so eloquently, as he said, we all have a mountain to climb and the only way we can get there is if we lend a hand to each other. That is such a beautiful, true sentiment. It is in acknowledging that none of us are where we want to be, but that we're going in the right direction whenever we're helping others. I had a major aha moment when Jaquinton said, racism uses fear and guilt. It's an obvious truth I haven't been able to concretely and concisely express before, but there it is now, out in the open, as plain as day. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Watch and listen. You will see these tactics everywhere. This is a simple way to become more aware as well as a simple conversation to have with others. Question their fear. Question where their guilt comes from. Question the origin of where people are finding their, air quote, facts. Oftentimes, we prefer to stay where we're comfortable instead of rock the boat and question our ill-informed family and friends about where they got their information. This is one way we can be allies. I genuinely admire Jaquinton's heart for unity and his understanding that it is humility that will get us there. He is a walking reminder of Mother Teresa's quote, only humility will lead us to unity and unity will lead us to peace. May we all have the humility to see that we've not arrived yet and the teachableness to press onward in our quest for unity, just as Jaquinton has.
Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.